Hey y'all, welcome back. This is Father Kelly Edwards from the Caesar Hotel in Tiberias, Israel. Coming to the end of day two here, and just like day one was a wonderfully fantastic day full of many things, enough to fill several days, but that's the way pilgrimage is that you go through way too much. But I'd rather see it quickly than not see it at all. Today we began, well yesterday began with a boat ride. Today, not a boat ride at all. Although there was water involved eventually. Today we took quite a long bus ride to uh, an area northwest of the Sea of Galilee to the base of Mount Hermon, which I mentioned yesterday. Yesterday we had this this distant snow-covered mountain, um, but today we got a whole lot closer to it. Now, regrettably, we did not go up the mountain, as delightful as that would have been. Uh, but we did go to... Uh, what's in scripture referred to as Caesarea Philippi, which is a town I hadn't known much about, uh, but really to even call it a town is not an accurate thing. It turns out I didn't know that. I'd always just presumed in scripture, oh, it's a town, Caesarea Philippi. Okay, sure. Uh, but it turns out it's a lot, it's different than that. Uh, it is actually what might be called, or what be thought of as a sort of a pagan Vegas of the day. Apparently here there was a temple to Augustus Caesar, there was a temple to the god Pan, the you know, half goat, half man uh, god, and there were some other things in the, around in the area, but basically it was, um, well, Vegas. It was a center of, sort of pagan worship and debauchery and all sorts of uh, sexual immorality and all sorts of things that, um, you know, more than just kind of, you know, the... the kind of quaint temple worship that we think of sometimes, but uh, really the um, depraved and evil things that we might, that, that go, you know, human sacrifice and things like that, that are the um, often unreme- conveniently unremembered side of paganism. So we go there, and it turns out, it seems that our Lord thought it was a good idea, obviously for wisdom of his own, to take his apostles and disciples to Caesarea Philippi to give the speech where he declares that Peter is the rock upon which the church is founded. Strange as it may seem, that is the background he chose for this very important discussion with St. Peter. Remember that Jesus asks who the people say that he is, and the disciples give various answers. But then he asks, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, the prince of the apostles that he is later, gives his answer, You are Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. So we get this great answer from Peter that Jesus is more than just Elijah, more than just a prophet, but that he is the Son of the living God, that he is God himself. And then our Savior goes on to give Peter, or I suppose to, to I say, give him a title, but to give him a new name. You're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, there's a whole lot going on here in terms of the setting. So, at Caesarea Philippi, there is these pagan temples, as I've mentioned. There's this uh, spring. Uh, well, it's kind of a big hole. It's a big cave, big hole with a deep hole in it. It's a spring of water that flows out and flows kind of down the cliffside. Uh, but they called it uh, the Gates of Hell. There's a big cliffside there. There's a big, a big rock. So the Lord says to Peter, 
You are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we can imagine that Jesus points to the rock and says, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, right below this rock, shall not prevail against it. And I'm sure, I hope, uh, the meaning was not lost upon the apostles there. This meaning is a difficult one, though, and could easily be misinterpreted. Jesus did not mean, we're clearly sure, that he was going to found his church upon pagan debauchery. Obviously, he did not mean that. That is clearly not what the church is about. And to say, to presume that, to, to insist that, is blatantly misguided. Think of it this way, though. The Lord says that he will build his church upon the rock of Peter. So in a sense, just take a rock as the rock as a symbol of solidity. So he will build his church upon a solid rock foundation. But then think of the setting, the particular setting of these pagan shrines and all this nonsense going on there. He will build his church above, that is, conquering these pagan activities. The church that Christ is founding is going to be one that is not in line with the pagan worship days. Even more than not in line with it, it is above it and destroys it. Christ in his gospel destroys paganism, destroys the the worship of worldly things, destroys the worship of you know what becomes the worship of man eventually, and replaces it with the proper worship of God, the creator of heaven and earth. Christ replaces the misguided worship that man falls into with the authority of his vicar who will lead the church, who will be the one who crushes paganism, who is paganism which comes from Satan. Peter will be the one who leads the church, the rock upon above which the church is founded that puts down these other activities that are against the ways of the Lord. To add to the effect, it's also worth noting that Pan, the god of you know, the, the, the false god of that place, the ones that they had the temple built to, was the lowercase god of shepherds. But then when Christ makes Peter his rock of the church, he makes him the shepherd for all the church. So he, in a sense, both is saying that the church, Christ's church, will be conquering of the pagan gods, the pagan culture, the pagan religion, but also that that Peter and the successors of St. Peter will be the new shepherds for the people, that there will be no need for a pagan god of shepherds, but that they are giving, that he is giving to the world a new shepherd in St. Peter. Interesting as well is that this river, a river uh, Bonius, uh, named after a pond that who the area is originally named after this river Bonius is that flows out of the cliffside there which still does flow out of the cliffside even though not out of the the cave in the cliff like it used to it flows out from a slightly different place apparently because of earthquakes um sidebar what would it have been like to be there when an earthquake happened and this river that came out of a cliffside suddenly changes to come out from somewhere radically different like did it happen immediately i mean probably in an earthquake you're a bit distracted by you know an earthquake happening and didn't notice the change of the nearby river. But that's pretty incredible that it would be from, you know, it used to be in a cave uh, up on maybe 100 feet above kind of the ground level, and then now it flows out from down, I guess, on the ground level. Um, 
in a very different place. So just geologically, what would that be like to have this pretty large volume of water suddenly change its source like that? Maybe there's some sort of theological connection there that uh, after the pagan temple change and Christianity uh, was in effect, which is when the earthquake happened, that uh, the paths of nature were changed or somehow uh, the water's being provided for a different purpose, which maybe that is a good symbol because this river, this Bonius River, this small little, it ends up being a moderately sized creek, uh, it actually, a moderately sized river, it actually is one of the three streams that flow into the Jordan River, that become the Jordan River, upstream from the Sea of Galilee and upstream from the Dead Sea. And so perhaps that is a fitting symbol that uh, these waters changed their source uh, at a time after the pagan shrines were there. And I'll post pictures of these places, of the, of the cliffside and the water flowing out, so that you can get a sense for uh, the space that I'm talking about. Next we went to Capernaum, which is called the town of Jesus. It's not called that in scripture, but that's what it's referred to now because uh, Christ spent a significant amount of time there. And I'll be honest, I didn't, I didn't realize how many things happen in and around Capernaum. It's where, not where St. Peter was from, but where he lived, where his mother-in-law lived, uh, where uh, the, it's, it's the place that the, one of the centurions had built a temple for the Jews. It's where uh, the Bread of Life discourse happens. It's where a few healings happen. It's where the man, uh, well, where, where his friends tear a hole in the roof to drop him in to be healed by Jesus. Actually, a lot of things happen in Capernaum. And as the tour guide was explaining these things, I, I recognized it. Uh, but I think I kind of realized as he was talking that the difficulty with, I mean, it's not a problem, but um, maybe a hazard of the way the readings we receive them at Mass, the way we encounter Scripture, is that it, you know a setting may be, we may know that we are happening, that the things are happening in Capernaum or some other town. You know, it may be mentioned in a certain chapter, but then several chapters of activities happen without a setting change. But unless you look back and from the very beginning as you you know see the gospel reading for the day at mass and you read back several chapters you may not realize that these activities are all happening in Capernaum so as the guys were explaining to it you realize that there's a very large amount of activity that's associated with Capernaum and that Jesus actually seemed to have spent quite a great amount of time there and so it was you know hearing this it became uh, more incredible to be in this place. Um, one of the best things was just sitting down beside the sea and thinking, because it was really from where the settlements were, where the synagogue was, uh, really maybe a hundred yards walk down to the water, down to the side of the Sea of Galilee. So uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house was there, and he lived there later. And so... Uh, one can easily imagine Simon Peter going down and fishing from that. Um, you know, perhaps even when he was with Jesus as an apostle, as one of his disciples, that um, he would still probably, perhaps, have some part in that fishing business, um, or at least frequently be down, maybe sitting with Jesus beside, you know, on the shore, on the rocks, uh, looking out at the lake. And it was a very, very peaceful moment, at least for me. I had a chance to walk down and sit beside the water and just gaze out at the Sea of Galilee for some time and uh, imagine this town that Jesus spent a lot of time in, you know, what would it, what would it have been like to have 
the savior, in a sense, kind of bumming around town and doing stuff, um, though he wasn't always uh, sitting there quietly. He did give things like the Bread of Life discourse, the great uh, passage or the great, I guess, speech you might even call it, where he explains what the Eucharist is and has this interaction with the people when he says, you know, this is my, you know, this is going to be uh, my flesh and my blood. I'm going to ask you to eat my flesh and my blood. It's not cannibalism, but it is receiving my body and blood in more than just a symbolic spiritual way, but in, but in a literal, actual way, parentheses, even though it looked like bread and wine still. People walk away, people leave, and people can't handle that. So that, that very challenging, that very sort of pivotal moment of his ministry where he explains that his gift to us is more than just his preaching, but it is going to be literally his body and blood. Uh, people can't handle that. But that happens right there in the synagogue in town. You can go um, not into the synagogue where that happened, but like is so true in, in this part of the world. You can go into the synagogue, into the ruins of synagogue that was built on the top of the ruins of the previous synagogue where it happened. So the fir- there's a first century synagogue who you, whose foundations you can see still. And then above that are the ruins of a fourth century synagogue, which you can, which mostly still exists. It's in ruins, but it's, you know, most of the columns are there, the floors are there, some of the walls are still there. So you can go in there and it, it looks, it looks the same architecturally as the one that was below it. So you can easily imagine what it would have been like for Christ to be there in that synagogue and to explain, you know, basically to give the bread of life discourse and have this discussion with the people there. You know, again, if he's if he's hanging out in this town, people know who he is, and they've gotten sort of used to having this famous preacher around. And suddenly, here he is saying, "I am the bread of life," referring to the manna. "I am the bread come down from heaven," and people are scandalized by that. And then they thought they knew this guy. They thought he was, you know, the cool preacher who was nearby that everyone liked. And suddenly, his message became a lot more difficult. So it was very incredible to be in that place. Um, also, just a, a fun side thing. Again, I'll post a picture of this, but I don't know how they got there, but there are um, big yucca plants and agave plants all around. Not the tequila kind of agaves, but very similar ones. And I actually saw a sign um, elsewhere around that they're from Mexico and the Americas. So I don't know how this happened, but somehow some peoples brought Mexican desert plants over to the Holy Land. So, I saw Ari Guadalupe yesterday, and that was a delightful surprise. And today, there's agave plants and other desert, you know, sort of North American desert, Southwest plants over here in the Holy Land. They look a little out of place, but it was it was it was nice to see them. After Capernaum, we went up and climbed Mount Tabor. Literally, some of us at least climbed Mount Tabor, just like the apostles did just like Peter, James, and John, and Jesus did. So, to back up slightly, we do, you know, we took the bus, you know, up kind of the, the low hills and, you know, the kind of, the foothills, I guess, of Mount Tabor. But then we get to a certain point, and the road becomes, you know, the very switchback, uh, narrow part. The bus just can't make it up. And so there's a kind of a, a stationary, kind of a, a convenience store sort of situation. And... Um, there's vans that take people to the top that, that can navigate the smaller roads. But I happened to look it up on, just pulled up my phone, looked at the, the, the maps on Google Maps and noticed that there's a trail 
you know, a, a dotted line marked trail that goes up to the top. And it looked pretty daunting. Um, definitely not a shallow a hill. It is, it is a mountain. Not a very high mountain, but it's a rather steep-sided mountain. And But it only said 37 minutes to the top. And I said, well, you know, the, the people that we were with said, well, we have, we have an hour. And we have this clear trail. So why not? Let's give it a shot. So we take off up the hill, hiking up Mount Tabor. And I can tell very soon that this is one of the best choices I've made in quite a long time. It is a gorgeous hillside. Just like yesterday, it was a fantastically beautiful afternoon. And, you know, the trail wasn't the greatest. Um, you know, having having worked at uh, Boy Scout camps, things like that, uh, the... I'm used to, this is going to sound pretentious, but I don't mean it to be that way, but I'm used to a little bit better uh, marked trails and I would say better designed trails. Uh, Usually it's kind of bad etiquette, trail making etiquette to go straight up the hill, just both for difficulty purposes and erosion purposes. But you know what? I'm not in charge of trails in Israel, so I can enjoy it. Um, Beautiful trees. um, I don't recognize most of the kinds of trees. Some of those tall, skinny cedar tree type things. Um, a few sycamores, actually. Um, but a lot of kind of trees I didn't quite recognize. Um, but it's very green, despite being January. It was very much a wooded mountain hillside. Um, rocky trail. A lot of mud, too, though. I suppose it had rained somewhat recently. The mud was that somewhat treacherous type that is tacky until it's slippery. You seem to have a good grip, and it seems to be all right, and then it can betray you very promptly. So it was a bit difficult of a climb in that way. That um, well, a that it was rather steep, and then if it's a bit muddy, a steep hill uh, doesn't do you any favors because it can seem safe, seem safe, seem safe. Oh, dangerous! And you can fall rather easily. So it was a bit slow going, but we were moving up, uh, moving through the trees, and getting beautiful views of the valley. A fantastic hike, and of course. We're thinking as we're hiking of Peter, James, and John going up the mountain with Jesus, what that must have been like. I mean, I presume there was probably a trail back then as well. Um, maybe not. Maybe it wasn't a very traversed mountain. But the idea of trekking up this mountain and then something happening at the top, which which we had masked the top, uh, it was a very identifiable experience. Uh, as, as one of the guys in the group said when we did get to the top, he said, because it, it ended up being quite a difficult climb towards the end especially, he said, yeah, I can see why they wanted to build some tents and stay up here because I, if I did that much effort to get to the top of this, I wouldn't want to go down very soon either. Um, which we did have ourselves a bit extra effort getting to the top. See, we knew we had to be up there by 4 o'clock. And by about 3.30, we were obviously very near the top. Not worried at all. A couple little more turns, a couple little more hill, and we were going to be up there. Well, we get near the top and we become foolish, as people often do, because we could see our goal and we abandoned our principles. Uh, not too much, but what happened is that I could see on the map, because I had it on you know, Google Maps, it was telling me that we would go up to the right, go up, catch a road, go to the right, and kind of make a loop around uh, back and then come back around to the front gate. But we could see the church, it was right there. So why make that big loop? Why don't we just kind of go up to the road, but then just kind of go diagonally across, cut across some grass, should be fine. 
Well, because, you know, sometimes in maps, it gives you like a long, obscure passageway, even though you could just walk across the parking lot. But it makes you take the official road, which is a lot longer. So we thought it was like that. So we go up, go over to the church. And, you know, we have maybe 18 minutes till mass time at this point. Still plenty of time. We're still mass at 4 o'clock. It's, you know, 3.42. No problem. We start walking up, but it seems kind of quiet, but we can't really figure out why. Um, but like, okay, you know, maybe we're just not familiar with it. Maybe there's like a side door. Well, all the doors, all the gates are locked. We look through a little garden. Nothing really going on there. Knock on the doors. Nothing. Okay, this is sort of weird. Um, well, crap, let's go back out to the main road. Maybe some. Maybe there's like a side gate that we don't know about. Uh, so we start heading back, looking kind of maybe we can cut across because we look on the map and there's, there is another road like, a block away. We can't quite see it through the trees, but surely it's just like right there. It should be easy to get to. It must go around the side or something like that. So we start walking back, but it soon becomes apparent that no, we need to walk far around because everywhere to our left, um, which is I think south of this point, um, there's a high stone wall and dense trees. So we've obviously misunderstood something. So after a couple switchbacks and, and doubling around trying to find our way, trying to figure out what to do, we said, okay, let's just follow the map like it says. You know, what a novel idea. And what it turns out is that there are two roads at the top of this mountain, two roads at the top of Mount Tabor. One of them that we were on, that we saw first, goes to the Russian Orthodox Church, which is not the one we're supposed to be at. So what had happened is that we get near the top, happy to be at the top and we go, oh look the church there it is let's go right over there well it wasn't the church it was a church and not the correct church so then we follow the trail around as we should have done in the very beginning and we come around to kind of a medieval style gate and we realize oh this is the road to the church we're supposed to be at the Catholic shrine run by the Franciscans, which we're going to have mass at four o'clock, which is at this point, oh, four minutes from now, by the time we get to the big medieval gate. But that medieval gate is probably five or six blocks. I don't know how to measure maybe a quarter mile, a little bit more than that from the church itself, which we can see way down this tree line lane. So we don't, well, don't quite run, but uh, definitely make great haste down the path, uh, passing tourists, trying to get hit by uh, other cars are leaving because, you know, over here cars don't really mind pedestrians quite as much as we're used to at home. Eventually we get there. The bell rings for four o'clock when we're still about two blocks away from the, from the metal gate of sort of the courtyard of the church. Uh, but eventually we get inside. I get into the sacristy. Um, the other people go to sit in the pews. Fortunately, Father Irwin was the, the main celebrant for Mass, so I just had to throw on my vestments. Uh, I'm still literally sweaty, mud on my feet, as the docent rings the bell and we process into the sanctuary. Um, it's not quite a way to enter into church, uh, but I suppose it works. It was, it was a very interesting experience to come out of the sacristy, which you know I, I had hustled through the front door of the church into the sacristy, didn't, really, didn't look around at the church at all, and uh, come in, and the docent sort of just points for me to go a direction and I just have to infer that oh he must mean down there oh those are my people okay okay well let's go that way so we go it turns out to be kind of down the steps into somewhat of a, a grotto chapel but it's actually rather large uh, down there um, reverence the altar 
begin mass, everything is fine. Um, but it was a very interesting procession to the top of Mount Tabor from getting out of the bus, thinking, oh yeah, let's climb out, this will be great, we have plenty of time to uh, some slow going because of the mud, getting lost at the top, uh, finding the wrong church first, having to walk all the way around, rushing into the sacristy. A beautiful church, actually. Um, the mass was still perfectly reverent, perfectly fine. Um, looking through those little, those little glass panels on the floor where you can look down to uh, what I suppose is kind of an earlier centuries church, which is pretty common here. There's always several layers of churches. And then below that, you can see the rock upon which, I guess I mentioned it so far, Mount Tabor, where the transfiguration happened, where Jesus goes up with Peter, James, and John. He is transfigured before them with Moses and Elijah, represent, representing the law and the prophets. So he's showing his apostles that, hey, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and I'm showing you my glorified body now, so that when I die on the cross later, you can remember this and believe. Um, so it's it's the scene of that. That's the whole point of the church and going up there and everything, to celebrate the transfiguration. Um, so it was uh, a bit more dramatic of a way to experience the Church of the Transfiguration, to experience this uh, mountaintop shrine to our Lord revealing himself to three of the apostles. Um, but it certainly was a memorable day. It certainly earned our dinner. So uh, that's the end of day two. We you know, took the bus back to the hotel after that and had dinner. But as I said yesterday, and we'll say many more times, um, you know, this was enough of an adventure to fill a whole trip just by itself. And it's only day two of I think we have a whole week more of things going on. We're not even in Jerusalem yet. And of course, many things happen in Jerusalem. So tomorrow we pack up from the hotel and go to Bethlehem, I believe. Um, I'm not in charge of this trip. I'm just a pilgrim, so I'll go where I'm told. Um, but it was another blessed day, another great experience, um, another certainly prayerful day, though um, you know, not like we had times for long extended holy hours, but to be in these holy places where incredible things happened is a great blessing from the Lord and to um, experience at least a little bit of um, that spiritual connection, that um, meaningful presence of the Lord in these special places is a great blessing. So thank you again to all, the made the, thank you again to all the who made this possible. Um, know of my prayers for all of you and especially for the special intentions and please pray for us as well. Thanks and God bless. 